So I've had the privilege of uh, going to a lot of weddings recently. Um, and I love going to weddings. Um, specifically, Gina and I like to break it down at weddings. We're, we love to dance, but we don't get to do it as often because we have a baby at home and we want to get back to the baby. But this last wedding I got to go to, we had a babysitter stabilized, dancing started a little earlier, so we got to enjoy breaking it down at the wedding. Ton of fun. Although I realize as I've gotten older, I look out of the dance floor, and I see that like the younger ones, like literally there the whole time. I mean, just going crazy, just, just dancing. And like, me and Gina go out there, we dance for one song, then I'm like, I'm tired. I'm done. I need a glass of water. I'm gonna take a break for three songs. So we kind of, I space myself out. I'm like, one song, I'm like, oh, I'm really, I'm the life of the party. I'll dance really hard. Then I'm like, okay, I'm done. And then I'll come back. Be like, see, I'm still here. So I try to sneak around. But going to all these weddings started making me feel nostalgic. It started making me think of my own wedding day and when I got married. Uh, it was a crazy blur. I mean, it felt like it went by so ridiculously fast. It was, it was a lot of work leading up to the wedding day. Then we went on our honeymoon, and then we came back to Durham. And then it hit me. I'm no longer the same as I was when I left. I am now a married man. It's crazy. I literally was, uh, I got married in my thir early 30s, so if I lived so much of my life as being a single guy, and so in this idea of coming back and being like, I'm no longer, like, you know, when you, go in, when you do your marriage, day, wedding day, and you go on your honeymoon, it's like not real, it's not real life, right? Then I come back and this is now real life. And it struck me, what do I do? Like, how do I really do this? How am I supposed to be as a husband? Well, this is kind of what I feel like is here in the scripture before us today in chapter 2 of Peter. We've been seeing in the chapter 1, in the first part of chapter 2, this, we've been given this breathtaking vision of who we are in Christ. Peter calls us elect exiles, which once again, anybody uses that as a band name, I think that's an incredible band name. <laughs> We're called elect exiles, called to be holy and to live holy. We're called, get this, and this is what moved me so much last week, we're called a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, people of absolute worth and belonging to God. It's absolutely incredible. It's amazing. It's life-changing. It's perspective-changing. It's paradigm-changing. This is who we are. But now in this section, it almost feels like we just got done with this marriage and honeymoon. Now we're being told how to live in this new reality. What are the priorities? How do we behave? We're elect exiles, so how do we live in this new world? Right away, Peter gets to business here. He says, once you've understood who you really are within God's great world-changing purposes, it's vital that you learn how to live appropriately. Once you realize this is who you are, you're a royal priesthood, a holy chosen race. This is who you are. Now, how do you live in that? To begin with, Peter seems like a kind of a stern moralist, doesn't he? He comes across as abstain from the passions of the flesh. He sounds like one of those, you know, moralist, fundy kind of people, like, abstain from the passions of the flesh. And you're like, ooh, okay, Peter. Guys, I want you to understand that the ancient world, which one that he was in, that was this world where they thought the more you're able to pursue the passions of the flesh, the better. I mean, often we see that in today's world. The more money, the more cars, the more hedonistic pleasures we have and we can achieve, it seems like maybe the better. Peter is stating that don't give in to those. Most of us seeing that those Things don't satisfy. Those pursuits that we often think the flesh desires, whether it's the food or the, the, the popularity, the wealth, the money, things money can buy, doesn't lead to joy, but we often see 
it so often leads to destruction. And Peter is starting off by saying, don't yearn for it. Don't long for it. But Peter is saying there's something huge at stake here. There's something waging war with your soul. You have a true life, a hidden life, as N.T. Wright says, that's described here in chapter 1, 1 through 5 and 2. These bodily desires, if you give into them, these passions of the flesh, if you give into them, will literally conduct a military campaign against your true life. He says that you're indeed a new place, a new temple, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Don't behave as they do. Otherwise, your real purpose to reveal to them who God is and what he's done will be squashed. In other words, don't let passions of the flesh or living as others do take away from who you really are. There's a, wage, a war being waged against who you really are. And these giving in to the, the, the lies, it's often like giving in to the culture. You know, um, Gina and I, when we, I like to be like that guy who travels, who like acts like the local, you know? I, I know we stick out, I understand this, but still, I like to be, when we travel, like, I'm, I'm like a local, what do the locals eat, and where do the locals hang out, and stuff like that. Well, this last time I told you how Gina and I, when we went traveling, I just embraced the fact that we're, I'm a tourist now. You guys remember this? I was like, I had the camera out, I had the fanny pack out, I had, I had, I wanted to wave a flag so Gina wouldn't lose me with my friends, you know? <laughs> I just embrace, be like, I'm different, that's okay. What this is literally saying is, you guys are living in a, a foreign place, and here's a temptation when you live in a foreign place. Here's a temptation, you're gonna resemble in every way what the world looks like, or the foreign place you live looks like. That's the temptation. Now in some ways, God is saying, yes, live in the world, but he don't say in every way don't resemble because you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, you're different, you're an elect exile. Remember who you are. See, this abstain from the pleasures of the flesh, what literally it's saying is don't forget who you are. Don't forget what you are and what you're meant to do. Verse 12, it says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. To live in this way is particularly important to stand in temptation against non-Christians. There's this temptation, guys, that non-Christians have at that time period of kind of running down Christians as evildoers and honestly even accusing them of being criminals. It says this in Peter 3.16. The early history of the church shows that Peter is not exaggerating by saying this. There were stories being circulated that Christians engaged in incest, cannibalism, you guys were eating of the body and drinking of the blood. There were like accusations of Christians like, oh, don't go near those Christians. They, 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 they commit cannibalism. They eat people. Really messed up. Even Tacitus, the Roman historian, a responsible one, commented that they were often loathed for their vices. Accusations of this kind against Christians are easy. Accusations of this kind are easy against anybody, aren't they? It's easy to make accusations. And it's easy often for people to believe them but extraordinarily hard to counter. Isn't that the sad reality? Accusations are easy to make. I can literally be like, oh, that Josh, he eats people. <laughs> easy to make the accusation. He's going to be like, no, I don't. <laughs> See, you can't prove it. Prove it you don't eat people. He's like, how do I prove that? <laughs> okay, I won't eat anybody. I mean, literally, accusations are easy to make, but so often hard to counter. What Peter proposed is a simple solution that Christians must overcome this slander by living lives of such exemplary goodness that other people recognize that everything else is false accusations. He hopes that they will end up glorifying God for what they now recognize to be good deeds. Think about that. 
What Peter is calling people to do is they live in such a manner that when people make an accusation like that, they're going to be like, you're crazy. I know that guy. And he does not live like that. I know that girl. She does not live like that. You know, they can't make an accusation against Megan like that because I know Megan's life. And it's not like that at all. That's what Peter is speaking here. That's what he's saying. Live in such a manner. And this will happen on the day he visits us. The Old Testament phrase on the day of visitation refers to a day of judgment. But guys, this is not just referring to a day of God casting judgment. This is literally to the day when people can look at your good works, look at your good deeds, and say, I have no accusation against them. They have something different. And the day of visitation could literally mean the day that that person looks at you, sees Jesus in you, and says, I want to know that Jesus. Do you get that? They're saying, literally saying, is let your life look in such a manner. Don't give in to the passions of the flesh. Conduct yourselves so honorably. Live without such good deeds that accusations fall flat before you. So that but for the purpose of of visitation, for the purpose that God will visit them and they will know who he is. Verse 13 Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Simple, clear statement. Subject yourselves for the Lord's sake to every institution. Don't let the wording mislead you. Paul's focus is not just just institutions, but it's also on people. We're to submit ourselves to all authority over us. And this is where we see emperor. So most of us in this day and age, we have no concept of what an emperor is. I mean, I don't think so, at least. Are there any emperors in the world? None, right? I just want to make sure. <laughs> Can I call myself emperor at some point in my life? No? Just wondering. <laughs> if I have, like, the empire of my home? No, no, okay, never mind. But as, as Americans, when we read this statement, we tend to kind of dismiss it because we don't know what emperor is. But literally, we can rephrase it this way. Submit yourselves to the president, Supreme Court, uh, the judiciary system, the Congress, to the governor, state legislature, state police, local police, principal at your school, principal where your kids go to school, your boss at work. That list could go on so much that you kind of like, this is disgusting. How many times do I have to submit myself? This is terrible. I hate this. There are so many layers of authority, and it's very, much, it's very much a possibility that in this layers of authority, we don't care about some of the people and some of the rules and some of the laws that these people in authority place over us. I mean, honestly, there will always be leaders we don't trust, laws we don't like, taxes we don't want to pay. What are we supposed to do? Peter's answer here is actually pretty simple. It says to submit. The word submit is a military term that literally means to get in line. Right? Even if we don't like the rules, we're to get in line anyway. He's very specific here. He doesn't say just the king, but he also says governors. He's talking about all levels of authority. No exceptions. And this is the part that gives us trouble. Because to be completely honest, as Americans, we don't like the idea of submitting. Honestly, as human beings, we don't like the idea of submitting. But most of us in the Western kind of mindset, in the Western kind of culture, the idea of submission is very, very difficult. I mean, look, let's look at how this nation, as, as the United States came about. We rebelled to start a nation, right? This is in our culture. This is in our ethos. And this is one of the beautiful things about America. We have this kind of, this culture of, of not standing still when bad things are happening, right? Submission is a difficult concept for us. But whenever we read a text like this, so whenever we read a text, we immediately start saying to ourselves, yes, but, don't we? 
We quickly have a dozen yes buts. Let's try to say that. <laughs> yes, that sounds weird. Okay. But I want you to clearly get this in mind. That if we start with the, the yes buts, then we miss the point. See, if we start with the, well, okay, I'll submit. Yes, but what if that person's stupid? Yes, but I don't respect that person. Yes, but. And we have all these yes, buts. And we miss the point of getting in line because there's different reasons. Let me give you the inner reason. It says here, for the Lord's sake. It says, what does Peter mean when he says we're submit for the Lord's sake? It means that there is a direct connection between the people in authority over us and God who is the ultimate authority. We may tend to look at a teacher who frustrates us or a boss who seems like kind of like, like um, Michael Scott from uh, The Office or whatever it may be. We look at these situations and we're like, I cannot submit to that person and think they stand alone. But that is not true. They exist and they are where they are by God's permission and God's authority. If God did not will it so, that person would not be in authority. This is in some sense even the people, true for people who seem harsh and cruel. They could not rule apart from God. Romans 13.1 says, Everyone must submit themselves to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So we submit to authority because God has commanded us to do so, and because God has established all human authority. This means that submission to authority is really an aspect of our submission to Christ. We will never fully grasp the importance of submission until we connect it to our obedience to Christ. Once we see that the Lord is intimately involved in every detail of our lives, then we will understand that obedience to authority is really obedience to the Lord. One objection that might be raised to this teaching relates to unjust rulers. Submission is hard enough when you have a really good boss, an incredible teacher, an honest leader, a fair employer, whatever it may be. But what if you have a boss who is unfair? What if you have a principal who won't listen, or you don't trust the people in Washington? Surely Peter's words can't apply to them, can it? May I remind you that when Peter wrote this about the king or the emperor, he was referring to Claudius or possibly Nero. Okay? Claudius is well known as being one of the most stupid rulers of all time. He catered to all the special interest groups around him, didn't know what he was doing. Nero was known as one of the worst emperors ever to rule the Roman Empire. He was cruel, he was wicked, he was vile, he was immoral, he was sadistic. His hatred for Christians is well known. Yet Peter still says, honor the king. What a difficult thing. Now this is not to say that it's supposed to be easy. But there is submission that is supposed to be given. Can I tell you though, there are certain places where submission does not go well with God, submission to God. Now let me explain this fully here. Um, your first, if you imagine layers of authority and layers of submission, your number one authority, who you are, your, your emperor, your actual emperor, your actual king is God. Because who, who are you? Remember, you're a royal priesthood. You're a diplomat. You're an ambassador sent to another nation. This country is not your country. This, home is, this land is not your home. Those of you guys who think America is your home, those of you guys who think this earth is your home, that is incorrect. 
Your citizenship as a Christian is in heaven. Your number one identifying factor is not whether you're white, black, whether you're young or old, whether you are from this country or that country. Your number one identifying factor, thanks be to God, is that you're a beloved child of Jesus. Can I tell you something? Man, I need to hear that all the time. Right? Because can I tell you right now, all around me, the world so often, especially for me, and you guys have heard, I said this before, tries to divide people, put them into their little, this is who you are, this is your group, this is your people group. And can I say, and I look around this room this morning in this place where Martin Luther King says the most segregated time in America is Sunday morning, I look around and say it's not in this place. So thank you guys. Thank you guys for that we in this place can see a picture of the beautiful kingdom of heaven where people from all tribes, tongues, and nations are gathered together and worship. Because our number one identifying factor is that our king, our overall authority, is God and not this nation. Can I get an amen to that? Amen. See, God, because he's our king, then we first owe fealty. Our first allegiance belongs to him. Right? So when we're faced in a situation, our yes buts need to be only, God, what do you call? He says, Lawrence. He says, Megan. He says, David. He says to Nathan. He says, you get in line and by your good deeds, for my sake, submit to authority. But if it's contrasting to the rules that I've given you, then, then you may act differently. Let me give you an example of this. Anybody know the story of D Daniel? Lion's Den Daniel? Anybody? Yes? Let's do a little Bible trivia here. Why was Daniel thrown into the lion's den? I can't say again. For praying? Why was he thrown into the lion's den? For praying? Okay. Why would he get thrown into the lion's den for praying? Why was it against the law? What was the law? Say that again. Pray only to. You guys need to watch some Veggie Tales. I'm just saying. <laughs> so it's out there. <laughs> That's actually one of the best episodes. Oh no, what we're we gonna do? No, sorry. Um, really good episode of Veggie Tales. The emperor at the time made it a law that said, "You need to pray to my image. You need to pray to me." There was a kind of act of deifying the emperors at the time, and that, honestly, that happens so much. And if you don't think so, it happens in our culture nowadays. There's act of deifying those in power. Right? But there was this act of this idea that you pray to the emperor, and Daniel's like, that is not happening. I'm only going to pray to my God. Right? Because that law, his authority was number one authority of God over his life. But before that, he was obeying all the other laws of the emperor at the time. Hear that. Daniel was noted and esteemed because he was obeying the laws of the land. He was seeking the welfare of that empire. He was seeking the welfare of that community. He was obeying. He was in submission. But when that law came, and it was against the very law that God has called him to, he said, that I cannot do. And then he said, okay, throw me in jail. Still willfully going to jail, submitting to that process. You guys see that? See, the outer reason why we submit is to be subject to the rule of the forest, make sure at the same time that by your good behavior you shame those who out of folly and ignorance want to criticize you. That is how God is establishing his presence and his rule on earth, in heaven as in, in heaven, on earth as it is in heaven. Oppressive tyranny and violent revolution are not the only options. Serving the true God by living a peaceful, wise, visibly good life is in the end far more revolutionary than simply overthrowing one correct, corrupt regime and replacing it, most likely, as history shows, by another. 
As this letter goes on, Peter is literally saying that, he's not saying that it's going to be easy. He's saying that authorities will not instantly respect you as followers of Jesus. He's literally saying it is going to be so difficult. He's saying this manner of life, this manner of submitting and sacrificing and dying, he's saying it's not easy. He says Christians will be called to suffer, to suffer greatly, to suffer unjustly after the pattern of Jesus himself. But all that happens within this solid place, all that happens because in that midst, there is a greater purpose being worked. The outward reason, the outer reason is to silence foolish people. They are to love in such a way and in such a, in such a manner that they trust in such a way that they believe God is accomplishing his purposes in the midst of it. Guys, I want you to hear this again. Literally, what Peter is saying, he's saying this. It's going to be so difficult for you to live in this way. It's so difficult for you to live in peace and submit to terrible rulers, submit to unjust situations, submit to situations and still live with joy and happiness. How could we possibly do that? As Christians, how do we submit to rules that we don't respect? How do we submit peacefully? How do we live well? How do we live honorably amongst people that often will hate and criticize, persecute and condemn? We can do this because we believe that the ultimate authority, that the ultimate power is more powerful and is behind all other powers. Do you hear that? Let me give you an example of this. And Danny shared with me this example, so I hope I don't butcher it. Um, missionaries were going to China for a long period of time, but in, around 1949, this is the day the communists took over in 1949, and they basically went through and they kicked out all the missionaries in China. So about 1949, the communists took over China and kicked out all the missionaries in China. And at that time, people were like, this is the worst thing in the world. All the inroads, the relationships that were being built, the gospel that was being shared, they thought, this is terrible. Well, around that time, there were guests roughly estimated to be around a million Christians in China. So 1949, communists took over. They were guessed to be about a million Christians in China. Communists took over. They forced out all the missionaries. Said, all right, you guys are out of here. Wanted to promote this kind of end of religion time period. Well, at the end of this turmoil in 1980, they were guessed to be at least 20 million Christians with a number that was exploding exponentially. Think about this, okay? Here we are, and if you were in this situation, you would want to revolt, and you say, no, this is not God's will. This is not God's plan. I will not submit to the authorities. I will not want to do this. But what God was doing in this time period where we think this is anti-God, anti-what we think is right, what all of a sudden God went from less than 1 million Christians to over 20 million and exploding with Christians. See, here's the confidence that we have. Here's why we can live in submission. Here's why we can approach the world and all the authorities and still say, I'll submit to it even though it's hard. I'll submit to it even though I suffer. I'll submit to it even though I think it's wrong and live a godly life because I know that my God still makes something beautiful out of this. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? Can I tell you, honestly, I don't know how people can get through suffering like cancer suffering like loss and pain without having God as the reason behind it. I know this sounds crazy. I know it sounds weird to say it that way, but for me, I need to know that there is still a reason, that there is still a God who makes something beautiful out of even the hardest situations. I need to know that even pain and suffering secures a peculiar glory, that it is not meaningless, that it is not pointless, that even our suffering has a purpose. 
for the glory of God and advancement of his kingdom. Even though I can't see it all the time, I have to trust and believe. Submission brings freedom. This is what's so balanced about this idea of submission and freedom. This is so incredible that we as Christians, we can call ourselves literally free servants. Christians are the ones in the West where everybody's radical individualists can be the ones who believe in authority. Christians are the ones in other places where everybody believes in radical submission can be the ones who are like, oh no, we're also very free. I love that, right? Whether we, we kind of have this idea of wherever we may be, there's this, a Russian writer who Tim Keller mentions. And he wrote this book, and he wrote this book about the problem of communism, the problem of totalitarianism, this problem of absolute authority. And he wrote this book speaking out against it and, and, and how saying, oh, this is what's wrong with it all. Then he came to the West, and then he started writing this book about what well, the problem of America and the problem of individuality and the problem of all the issues that we have, the individualism. So he's like, in the, when he was in Russia, he wrote about the problem of totalitarianism. Then in America, he wrote about the problem of being individual. And of course, what that looks like is the West is different than the East. There's different issues, there's different places. But one of the things that we can see in this is this is our reality as Christians, as we say, as free servants, which seems like contradictory terms, which seems like an oxymoron, but instead, this is an actually powerful phrase that captures exactly who we are. See, we are called, and we can be, free servants because we're free from all the ethnic culture, family traditions, popular opinion, expert opinions, 99% of the popular opinion of the public, whatever. We're free from all those opinions because our only question is, is it biblical? Is it God's will? Is, is, is that what God calls us to be? We don't have to care what, what all these situations, we don't have to care what the authorities say. We don't have to care what the president says. We don't have to care what the Supreme Court says. We don't have to care what the emperors say because our authority is higher. You hear me? At the same time, we can submit to even the bad authorities. We can submit to even the most terrible authorities because we acknowledge that we, once again, have a higher authority that allows us to submit as well. Do you guys see the freedom in being servitude to that? Do you guys see the idea of being free servants? I know it's an intellectual concept. I want you not to miss it. I love this phrase here. It says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. By the way, I, wanted, I, I, I don't have a tattoo, but if I ever got one, the one that I wanted me and my best friends to get is that actual phrase in the Greek. You know, I actually like the idea of love the brotherhood, right? Wouldn't that be an awesome tattoo? Like, are you best friends that you kind of grew up with, just have like the love the brotherhood in Greek? Just saying, Gina, one day maybe if you let me. <laughs> What this is saying, literally, is that you're free to be a servant. You're free to serve. It's, it's saying that this is the practical, that's the practical application of submitting to authority for the Lord's sake, is that you can honor everybody. You can, you can, you're free to serve everybody. You're free to love everybody. Because if you understand, if, if you situationally put where you said, my higher authority is God, I can question every authority before me, every word of authority, whether it's media, pop culture, human authority, expert authority, um, institutional authority, I can question it all because my authority is higher. At the same time, I can submit to it all willingly, even though when I feel like it's not the best, because I trust that God has placed those in authority. 
And the practical application is this, is that you honor everyone. You live as a servant, the way Jesus came, not to serve, not to be served, but to serve. There are elements of what it looks like to be a servant. And I'm just kind of trying to go a little fast forward here. But there are elements of what it means to be able to serve, what it looks like being a servant. And there's four things that I want that uh, exemplify what a servant looks like. And I'll do this really quickly. First, a servant is affirming. They honor you. They make you feel honored. A servant focuses on you. They don't focus on themselves. They don't try to always hijack, hijack every conversation for their own end. They look to lift you up and to affirm you, to treat you well. I love how it says honor, respect. These are words that a servant lives by. Honor and respect. This idea of, of, of honor, actually, um, honor everybody, comes from the Greek word here. It's actually the Greek word, base word for Timothy, and it literally means to fear God. And this is the idea of honoring somebody is to say, not necessarily of like, I'm scared of you, Megan. It's honestly placing her, you know when there's people who are in authority or people in respectful positions that are higher than you. It's literally looking at somebody and think, think of somebody higher than yourself. It's just humility. A servant doesn't look at somebody and says, I'm better than you. A servant doesn't look at somebody and says, you know, hey, you're, you know, I'm holier than you, I'm better than you, I'm more important than you. A servant looks at somebody and says, no, no, no. You're in a position of higher esteem than me. How can I serve you? You know, in, um, in, the, in Korean culture, my, my parents are in town. And I love that because we get to, Gina and I, like, we typically feel guilty when we leave Josiah at home, you know. But Josiah loves my mom, like, loves his grandmother so much. That's almost like, we don't feel guilty anymore. He's like, get out of here. I'm here with grandma. We're like, sweet. And so me and Gina played putt-putt yesterday. Guy-girl challenge. We wanted to contribute. Um, so Gina and I went pop out yesterday, but well, there's interesting elements in Korean culture, like of like, my wife is supposed to like, this is Korean culture, like cut fruit for my parents and present it to them, you know, have to be this kind of very servant attitude because as a sign of respect and honor, the, the elder is seen as higher. Do you see what I'm saying, guys? What this literally is saying is that you need to act like you're the daughter-in-law if you understand the Korean culture. Does that make sense? Not you have to understand what I'm saying. Is that you look at that to everybody. Honor everybody. You're saying literally think of everybody as higher than yourself. Guys, can I tell you, when we walk into a conversation, we walk into a situation, the first thing most of us do, honestly, in reality, in our humanness, the first thing you do is kind of size them up and be like, what level of respect should I give you? Or how can you benefit me? What can I get out of this conversation? Right? Is that not the case? I'll be honest with you. I am so guilty of that so often. And the word, the Bible, is calling us to this different way of living. It's saying, look at everybody. Instead of saying, how am I better than you? What can I get out of you? What can you give me? I literally can look at that person and say, you're higher than me. How can I serve you? How can I love you? How can I affirm you? And we have the freedom to live like that. You don't want to miss that. We have the freedom to live like that because we know through who God is, the ultimate authority is, we know our own worth. Why do most people put other people down? Why do most people have to dress and look in a certain way to say, hey, I'm awesome and you're lower than me? Because they're so not confident in who they really are. But me, you, those of us can know that we're so radically loved, 
that we're called to such incredible purpose that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That is who we are. So we don't have to try to put other people down to lift ourselves up because God has already lifted us up. Do you hear that? So now we can look at others and say, how can I serve you? A servant is affirming. A servant too. A servant covers for people. They overlook slights. They overlook faults. You can tell, honestly, a difference between a real person is if they're, if they're a real servant from a fake servant is if they're slighted. If they're not esteemed for their serving. Then they're like, oh, well, I guess I'm not appreciated. Right? A servant covers. And these are all examples of what Jesus did, isn't it? Three, a servant genuinely cares. It's so easy to act like a servant to get something out of it, right? But a servant genuinely cares. And four, a servant doesn't seek position, but knows his position. James and John said to Jesus, when we come into the kingdom, one of us, can we be on your left, another one on your right? And Jesus says, don't you understand? If you understand what I've done for you, I took the lowest place. I had position, but I didn't hold on to position. I emptied myself and became a servant. I became obedient unto that. If you understood all that was done for you, then you wouldn't be scrambling for position. If you understood, get this, people. If you understood that it wasn't about how good you were, how talented you were, how holy you are, how cute you are, how smart you are, how skilled you are, how professional you are. It wasn't about anything you did to earn any bit of the grace and mercy of Jesus. You weren't holy enough, you weren't good enough, you didn't try hard enough, you weren't nice enough. There was no list of good deeds that you've done. But only because Jesus chose out of great love, only because the Father, out of his love and mercy, sent Jesus for you in your place to take upon the sins of the world, can you now be looked at and said, you are righteous, you are holy, you are clean, you are loved, you are pursued, you are passionate, you are my treasured possession. That is who you are. I always say this, the human condition is we want to be known, we want to be loved, and we crave purpose. And in Jesus, you can be known, but in the midst of being known for all your faults, all your darkness, all your issues, all your insecurities, all your fears can be known, but it can be met and still loved in Jesus. That is who you are. That frees you to be a servant, not seeking after position. Do you see that? Martin Luther says this, a Christian is perfectly free, Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is perfectly a dutiful servant of all, subject to all. We are both free servants. May we live like that as elect exiles in this world. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you, we thank you, God, that because of who you are, and because of the work you've done, because of your great love for us, that we can be known and we can be loved. God, we can know our identity, we can know our status, we can know who we are, so thus we can serve and love others well. May people see the good deeds, the good work of our lives, and may they see Jesus in it. God, may they see and they lift up the name of Jesus, because he is the one that gives us the confidence. He is the one that gives us our position so that we can live as free servants. So may we continue to do so in Jesus' name. Amen.